Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you. Thanks for being friendly with one another. We are indeed a friendly church. Welcome to those of you joining us online. My name is Otto Ramos. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and it's my great honor to welcome you to church. If this is one of your first times joining us, we are so glad that you've chosen to worship here at Victory Life Church. And if you'd like to learn more about who we are, we would invite you to take a communication card that can be found on the seat back in front of you. And if you would be so kind to fill out that card, and then if you have some free time afterwards, come see me at the Welcome Center. We have a free gift for you. For those of you joining us online, may I encourage you to go to our website at vlchurch.com. And there is a banner on our front page that says, are you new here? Just click on that banner and fill out that form, and I will connect with you sometime this week. But indeed, thank you. I do have a few announcements for you this morning. I want to make mention once again about our Shine Your Light vision that we have going on that you know all about. We launched our humongous, our huge, our amazing Pray and Go initiative last week. And I just want to give many of you uh, just a round of applause and ovation. We had 85 people sign up for Pray and Go last week. Give yourself a pat on the back for that. That is so cool. Uh, Our goal is to get 100, so we're 85% there. Look how good I am at math. I am your local Blaise Pascal. But anyways, I think it was actually 84, wasn't it? Yeah, so I got it wrong. But anyways, have some grace on me, all right? But nonetheless, um, if you would like to learn more about this Pray and Go initiative, might I encourage you to take that really fanciful key tag that we handed out to you these last few weeks, uh, uh, take a picture of that QR code that will take you to an explanation where Pastor Matt offers a breakdown of what it is and how you can get involved uh, but if you know about it and you'd like to get involved, or if you'd like to learn more this morning, you can actually go out into our North Lobby. Our leaders of our Pray and Go initiative, Jack and Kim Kay, uh, Malin, will be out there, and you can get signed up today. But we're really excited about that for sure. A few more announcements this morning. I mentioned these last few weeks that we have life group signups that are ongoing. You can sign up online at vlchurch.com. Just click on the banner that you see there, and you might be thinking, well, what is a life group? Um, A life group is a small group, you know, where you get together with other people that want to learn more about God's Word, and you can pray for one another, encourage one another. Uh, It was life-changing for me. It it, it continues to be. I have a life group today. You can join mine. Mine's with the Gospel of Matthew, which relates to a lot of what we're hearing uh, this fall on the Shine Your Light vision. But we have various life groups So might I encourage you to go to our website and click on the banner that you see there on the screen, and you'll see a listing of all of our life groups. Hop into one. We have some that have already started. It's okay. You can join those. But we have some that are starting up these next few weeks as well. And so just encourage you to get involved with one of those life groups. They're going to be absolutely phenomenal. Also, I want to make mention of one more announcement that I have this morning. We're going to have a youth leader meeting. This is for our Victory Life Church youth ministry. It's going to be led by Pastor Aaron and his team. So if you would like to shine your light to our Victory Life Church youth, and if you'd like to make a difference in the lives of our youth, we would love to have you attend this meeting after service today. It's going to be in room 307 as you exit the sanctuary and you leave out the north uh, foyer here. It's the last door on the right. They are going to have food at this meeting. So if you didn't eat breakfast this morning, you might want to consider the prospect of stopping by 
and getting a bite to eat, if nothing else. But seriously, if you're, you're thinking about the fact that God has given you gifts and talents and abilities to influence our young people, check it out. It's going to be after our first service here today and also after our second service in room 307 uh, this morning. Well, that's all I have in the way of announcements this morning. If you've come to worship God with your tithes and offerings, you likely know what to do. You can give online or you can give via text or you can give as you exit the sanctuary this morning. But indeed, thank you for worshiping the Lord Jesus with, with your tithes and offerings. I'm going to ask you to stand this morning, and as we do so, might we bow for a word of prayer. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, thank you for the opportunity to be in this place at this time for one reason, and that's to worship you. May you meet us here now as we worship. In Jesus' name, amen.
greater than any problem we face, anything that comes our way. He's the one who spun the universe into being, and the same God whose grace is greater than all our sin. So this morning, that's the God we worship, the God who can break every chain, the God who can set every captive free. It's him. He's greater than it all.
is greater than the great I am. No fear, no grave, no other name is greater than the great I am. No guilt, no shame, no sin, no stain is greater than the great I am. No fear, no grave, no other name, no other name. Come on. Is greater than the great I am. No sin, no shame, no guilt, no shame. Is greater than the great I am. No fear, no grave, no like the name of Jesus. When you speak the name of Jesus over your life, there is power, there's healing, there's provision. Let's speak greater than. Greater than the mountain that's in front of me. You are greater. Yes, you are so much greater. It's greater than the power. Greater than the power of the enemy. You are greater, so much greater, greater than the mountain that's in front of me. You are greater, so much greater, greater than the power of the enemy. You are greater. So much greater, greater than the mountain that's in front of me. You are greater, so much greater, greater than the power of the enemy. You are greater, so much greater.
For it is by grace that you have been saved. And this not of yourselves, but rather it is a gift of God, so that no one can boast of that which we have through Christ Jesus. Thank you, Father God, for the words of the Apostle Paul who reminds us of that one fundamental truth that sets the gospel apart from any other religious expression in this world. You found us before we found you. And you had grace on us when we were lost and when we needed redeemed. And that is what saved us. That's why we celebrate the fact that you came into this world and volitionally put yourself on a cross and conquered the grave so ultimately we could spend the rest of eternity with you. That is the real expression of the grace of God, and for it we are thankful. And because of it we pray in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, thank you, and you can be seated. Well, we're going to continue this morning in a time of reflection and worship by having communion together. My communion servers, you can make your way forward as we prepare our hearts and minds for what we're about to do. And if you're comfortable as a believer in Jesus partaking, uh, you can do so. We'll call you up here in just a minute to receive the elements. Uh, But before we do so, might I offer a few thoughts? I'd like to begin with Colossians 1, verses 21 and 22, in which case the Apostle Paul said this. He said, once you were alienated from God, but no longer are you alienated. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. You see, before a person has a revelation about Jesus, that person stands unreconciled to God. They are hostile to God. They want nothing to do with God. But God doesn't want for it to be that way. In fact, his heart is broken by the fact that people do not understand his heart for them. And so what God does is that he often takes the first step to move into where we live so that we could indeed know his heart for us. I once heard it illustrated this way. Uh, once upon a time, a man fell into a pit and couldn't get, couldn't get himself out. A subjective person came along and said, I feel for you down there. An objective person came along and said, well, it's logical that someone would fall down there into a pit. A Christian scientist came along and said, well, you only think you're in a pit. A Pharisee said, only bad people fall into pits. A self-pitying person said, you haven't seen anything until you've seen my pit. An optimist said, things could be worse. A pessimist said, things will get worse. But Jesus, seeing the man, reached down, took him by the hand, and lifted him out of the pit. 
That, my friends, is the real story of Jesus. He found you and me in a pit, and he pulled us out. The Apostle Paul once again puts it this way in Romans 5.8. He says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is what Jesus has done for you. That is what Jesus has done for me. He's lifted us out of a pit. When we were far away, when we were imperfect, when we were alienated from him, God stepped into our world to reconnect us to himself. And so the purpose of our time together in communion is to reflect on that truth, how God pulled us out of a pit. So I'm going to encourage you to come forward and receive your elements now. Uh, We can go row by row, and we'll enter from the inside and re-enter our rows from the outside. And so we can start with the first rows of our front section and our our back section, and then we'll uh, take our communion elements together as we reflect upon how God pulled us out of our pit.
And so we hold these elements in our hands as reminders of how God redeemed our lives, of how he has had grace on each of us, of how he has saved us and pulled us out of that hole that we were once in. And even to this day, continues to pull us up. When we make mistakes, when we have missteps, when we have foul-ups, many of you this week may have had a major mistake, a major blunder. But may this piece of bread and this juice be a reminder of the fact that the supernatural power of God still is redeeming you to this very day. So might I remind all of us of some very specific words um, uttered in 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul says, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took some bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Take this in remembrance of me. Might I encourage you before you take it? I want you to just pause, close your eyes for a few moments and thank the Lord for allowing his body to be broken to redeem your life from the pit. Holding the bread in our hands, can we take the bread together? After those first disciples took the bread, Jesus held up a cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Take this, and whenever you do so, do it in remembrance of me. Before we take it, can we do the same with the juice and just reflect upon the fact that by his blood, Jesus has brought us near to himself. Take a few moments with that. having thanked the Lord for what he has done by the shedding of blood that came from his son Jesus, might we take this juice together. Can we pray together? Father God, thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for showing us that the exact representation of who you are has been lived out and personified through the person and work, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is that story that we believe in, and it is that story that defines our lives.
may you enable us and empower us to continue to live out that story. And for our remaining days here in this world, may we also always tell that story. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. Thank you, Pastor Otto. Thank you, worship team, for your ministry to the Lord and unto us this morning. Young disciples, you may be dismissed at this time. Don't lose any time in leaving. My goodness. They were ready. Those were my own children. They hear from me weekly, so daily, most of the time. Hey, I'm Pastor Matt. So glad to be able to share the Word of God with you this morning. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn with us to Matthew chapter 9. We are journeying through the Bible, more specifically we're journeying through Matthew, and stopping at places where there is an evangelistic flavor. Uh, One of the things that as I was away uh, praying and getting ready for the next calendar year uh, was just how impressed I was with how many passages in the book of Matthew the Lord Jesus speaks or the Lord Jesus encourages us or does something Uh, wildly evangelistic. And so we're taking a look at those passages along with our Shine Your Light initiative. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 and following this morning. Earlier this summer, um, well, actually this spring, my wife approached me. She says, Matt, I'm thinking of running a 5K. And I said, that's great, honey. I'm glad you're going to do that. She said, I'd like you to do it with me. And like an idiot, I said, sure. You see, I'm not a runner. Maybe my frame would convince you of such, but I'm not a runner. But I thought, okay, I can do a 5K. I work out. I can, I can do this. So I began to train for a 5K, and I got to tell you, I hated every minute of it. I hated running. I hated being outside running. I hated thinking about running. I hated the way running made me feel, and I thought, I'm not enjoying this in the least. But over the course of time, I began to train for this 5K to get ready for it, and, and, and runners, I'm not a runner. I want you to hear me. I'm training for my second, I'm getting ready for my second 5K right now. I'm not, I'm not a runner. Don't, don't come up to me afterwards and have the whole Brooks versus Sacconi's argument with me. Not a runner, okay? Not a runner. I am a person who runs from time to time, okay? That's what I am. So, so I, I'm, I'm going to do a second 5K, but, but runners told me, not a runner, runners told me that when you start running, there's this pain line you got to cross every time you go for a run. Like, you gotta, you got to mentally and emotionally prepare for the moment you want to quit, and you got to push through and go, this hurts, this doesn't feel good, I'm not enjoying myself, but I'm going to push through towards the goal. And, and I'm wondering from you runners this morning, does that pain line ever stop? Does this ever just stop where you're in the mid-run and you want to keep running, or you don't, don't want to, does it ever stop? Because the pain line's consistent. Even, even now, getting ready for my second 5K, I, 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 there's this moment I'm like, I, I, this is stupid. What am I doing out here? I'm not enjoying myself. This doesn't feel good. And yet we push through and we get to 3.1. We get home all hot and sweaty. Now, I got to tell you that the 5K itself was amazing. There is nothing like hundreds, if not thousands of people all setting out for the same goal. It's a powerful, powerful moment for those of you who run a 5K. Like, I enjoyed that part. And I enjoyed pacing myself off a young mom pushing two kids that entire first 5K. And no shame here. We both did 10-minute miles. We were good. She was just pushing two extra humans. I wasn't afraid to, to pace myself off. It was fine. 
But I tell you, what a powerful moment when you come across that finish line, and you're like, wow, and people are cheering for you, and you're all excited. You're like, wow, wow, we all did this together. Now, some of them did it in 15, 17 minutes, but we all did this together, and, and we all were, were trending in the same direction. But all of us, at some level, had to cross that pain line, that line where you go, ugh, I got to push through, you got to push through. Well, we're going to see progressive pain lines at points in the book of Matthew, places where it would have been easy perhaps for Jesus to shrink back and do something different that wouldn't have been painful to him. Where he goes and he crosses a line, and we're going to talk about some of those in the weeks to come where he goes, you know what, I'm going to push through, I'm going to do what God sent me to do, and it's going to be painful to parts of who I am and what I'm doing. And of course, we just celebrated the final pain line that he pushed through, which was to offer his very body in sacrifice for our sins. So Jesus is going to begin to engage in painful actions, ultimately to finish the race as God had called him to. And we're going to see one of those in Matthew 9. And I think it's very important for us to see that today, as I encourage you, what is that line that God is asking you to cross, where you're running up to it, and you're going, I'm running a good race for the Lord, but I just, I don't want to cross because that would cost too much. Well, Jesus is going to start feeling the cost of his ministry here. And I, I want to see, perhaps, if God will speak to us today and help us count the cost of what it would cost us to do things like Jesus did them. So that's the task today. If you're in Matthew 9, we're going to be in verse 9 and following. We're going to see two pain lines that Jesus crosses over in order to do everything God had called him to do. Now, I want to set this up for you real quickly. Jesus has crossed back over the Sea of Galilee, and he is making his way into Capernaum. So it's going to say, as Jesus passed from there... We're talking about kind of coming up out of the Sea of Galilee into the city of Capernaum. We're in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth. And he said to Matthew, follow me. And Matthew rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining, that means eating, they were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." Jesus gets into it with him, doesn't he? He gets into it with him. We're going to talk about what was taking place here because what Jesus does here doesn't appear on the surface of things to 21st century Christians to be all that shocking or to be all that painful. But suffice it to say, Jesus has been doing unconventional things to this point already. We mentioned a few weeks ago how Jesus called fishermen, everyday average Joes, to be his first disciples. That was unconventional. We talked about in week one of this series how Jesus looked at the illiterate and poor masses of people who were gathered around him at that Sermon on the Mount and looked at them and said, you are the light of the world. You all, you all who are humble in social standing, you're the ones who are going to do the things that are going to point people to, to the kingdom of God. It's going to be you. They're going to give glory to God because of you. But now in two weeks, he's done two very interesting things. Remember where we've been last week Jesus gives his disciples a very painful truth. Remember that centurion that came up to him, that Roman occupier, that, 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 that symbol of Roman oppression who needed a miracle? 
And he displays great faith in Jesus, and Jesus stops for a minute, and he turns back to his disciples, and he delivers a painful truth. He says, many will come from the east and the west and sit down, or recline, here's reclining, they'll sit down at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while many of the sons and daughters of the kingdom, they're going to be thrown into outer darkness. Painful truth, right? That, that, that people are going to so misunderstand me and so misunderstand what I'm doing that, 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 that there are going to be people who don't make heaven, who you think ought make heaven, and there's going to be Roman occupiers who are going to be sitting down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a painful truth. Well, now Jesus is about to live out that truth in action. He's about to take a couple of people who shouldn't be sons and daughters of the kingdom and invite them in. People who should be on the outside, but he's going to bring them to the inside. They should be outside of his sphere of influence, but he's going to make an effort to bring them inside his sphere of influence. The first one is Matthew. This is a pain line that Jesus crosses. We're going to talk about it in just a minute. He invites a tax collector to be part of his inner circle. Now, that doesn't mean anything to you or me because we're living in 21st century America. I don't think any of us really like the IRS, but I don't think we're, 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 we're violently opposed to them you know, in a physical sense. Now, now, that's one thing. We're going to explain that. The second pain line that Jesus crosses is the one that gets him into the argument with the Pharisees. He goes and sits down and has dinner with Matthew's disgusting friends. And that's going to be a problem. Let's unpack why that's a problem, and let's unpack what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is still at the beginning areas of his ministry. He's in Capernaum, which is in Galilee, which is in the north of Israel. He's calling disciples. He's getting his ministry band together. He's getting things started, and he does something so outside the box that anybody standing with him that day had to have their jaw drop. He looks at a tax collector sitting in his tax collecting booth and says, why don't you come and follow me? Why don't you come and follow me? Did Jesus know who this Matthew would become? He must have had some kind of picture, right? That, that this tax collector is going to become somebody who's going to be a great evangelist for me. In fact, we're indebted to Matthew. We're reading his gospel. The guy that got called that day in Matthew 9 wrote what we read from today. He's one of the four great written evangelists. He tells the story of Jesus. He's eventually going to do the painstaking work in the first century of writing the story of Jesus Christ. This same Matthew is going to be a powerful evangelist, both by Christian tradition, both to Babylon and Asia and into Africa. This man's going to be a powerful evangelist for Jesus. Jesus is able to see it, but he wasn't that day. On this particular day, Matthew was a traitor. A traitor to all his people held dear. You see, fishermen are innocuous. Fishermen are normal. Everyday average Joes. Tax collectors are repulsive and notorious. And for those of you who've heard that a million times, I know you're thinking, please don't describe tax collectors to me for 20 minutes. I won't. But for those of you who haven't heard this before, I want to give you a, 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 a picture of who the tax collector in the first century Jewish world was. This was a Jewish person who had bought his office as tax collector from the Roman government the Roman oppressors, the Roman occupiers, the people who had conquered them, and now they're collecting taxes for the Romans. Imagine if you had to pay your taxes to the IRS and you had to pay your taxes to China. 
You wouldn't like that, would you? But that's what's happening to the Jewish people. They are paying their taxes to a foreign power, and they're using Matt Griffiths. You're a Matthew. You're in the second row. To collect those taxes. Except here's the problem. Here's the problem. The Romans don't pay Matt. You know who pays Matt to collect your taxes for the Romans? You do. Matthew sets his own rates. And he will overcharge you on your taxes to support whatever lifestyle Matt thinks is best for he and his family. How do you like that? you got to pay your taxes to the Romans through this guy, and he charges you whatever he wants for the privilege of you paying your taxes. Now, you wouldn't like him very much, would you? And Jesus is walking up from the Sea of Galilee that day to a tax collector's booth, and where did Peter, Andrew, John, and James work? On the Sea of Galilee, and they lived in Capernaum. What is the probability that their tax man, Jesus' current disciple's tax man, was Matthew? Not the tax man that you never see that you write to the IRS once a year. The tax man who you see regularly to pay your taxes to the Roman oppressors and he overcharges you so he can live high on the hog. That's who Jesus just invited into his inner circle. Now, it's interesting that Matthew doesn't talk about this scandal. He talks about the next one. Right? He doesn't talk about this scandal. And and I wonder if he didn't talk about this scandal because he didn't want to make those other disciples look bad years later. I don't know. Or maybe he he, he doesn't want to recall the time that he became one part of the inner circle of Jesus with the very men who he had taxed. We don't know. But dramatic presentations from Jesus of Nazareth all the way to the chosen have caught this tension, haven't they? That Matthew ought not have been in the inner circle of Jesus, and for some reason Jesus calls him anyways. I can't imagine the credibility loss that Jesus had among his disciples when he did this. I can kind of imagine it. I remember years ago in my youth group days, there was a young man who started coming to our youth group. He was notorious and repulsive. He absolutely was. One of the, I'm te- you know what? At that point in our lives, one of the worst human beings I'd ever met. Really? Really? You say, do you get to judge that? No, I'm not supposed to, but I did. This man was notorious for sleeping with as many girls as he could in his high school. He was notorious for sneaking into strip clubs, notorious for drinking heavily, notorious notorious for playing sports with you, and then any time you did something good, he'd try to physically injure you. He was a jerk, an epic jerk. And somebody who was a leader in our youth group had the audacity to try to disciple him. And that offended my sensibilities. Because this guy was notorious and repulsive. And I remember this leader would spend time with this guy, and I'd think, that guy is a jerk. Stop it. You don't even know. He tripped me during basketball the other day. You don't even know. You don't even know. And I remember at one point in the middle of his discipleship journey, isn't that a Christianese word, discipleship journey? One point in his discipleship journey, our youth leader pulled him up and put a hand around his shoulder and looked at him in front of a bunch of us and said, I'm so proud of all the things that God is doing in your life. I was ready to barf. My buddies and I were ready to barf. We'd sooner take him out back and rough him up than have that stated of him. 
And years later, I look back and think, what a Pharisee I was. What a Pharisee. That this youth leader was taking the time to call a Matthew into the inner circle. And I was so fixated on his current state that I was not worried about who he could become in Christ. I was so fixated on his current sin that I couldn't see that he might become a disciple of Jesus if somebody just discipled him. See, this is what Jesus is doing here. He's pulling in this repulsive and notorious sinner and saying, be part of my inner circle. My grace is what pulls you in. My mercy is what pulls you in. My favor is what pulls you in, not your current state. So, so in essence, Jesus sees him for who he will become. He's not fixated on who he is that day. And that's my first point I want to make to you today from this story. People who see like Jesus see others for who they will become and are not fixated on who they are today. The Holy Spirit will deal with who they are today. He will bring conviction. And we can hold up the truth and we can say this isn't right, but, but we must see people for who they will become, not become fixated on the label we put on them today, on our judgments of them today, and on the credibility it costs us for spending time with them. And that's still true. That's a real thing. That's a real thing. The minute you start to spend time with a Matthew, the Pharisees start looking at you like this. They start giving you a weird look. Because they want you to tell them that person's in, they want you to tell that person they're in sin. They want you to make it very clear that they're living unrighteously, and they want you to say it so many times that that person never comes around again. Because they're fixated on it. They have to see it, and they have to, they have to acknowledge it, and you've got to acknowledge it, and you've got to say it. And, and I don't know, the Bible is silent, but I can't imagine how the four disciples who we knew were with Jesus at this point looked at Jesus when he goes, yeah, Matthew's staying with us tonight. I know how this Matthew would have responded to that all those years ago. I can't imagine how Peter and Andrew and John and James felt about this move, but Jesus makes it anyways. Perhaps it cost him some credibility. So this is a pain line. No matter how we want to see it, he's moving past conventional thinking in order to save Matthew, but then business is really going to pick up. Jesus goes and has dinner, reclines at the table with Matthew's disgusting friends. I mean, it's one thing to pull in one of them, but it's another thing to go hang out with these guys. And he's reclining at the table, which means he's sharing a meal with Matthew and the other tax collectors and sinners. And you might be saying, well, we're all sinners. What's the big deal? No, sinners in this context meant something very, very specific. Sinners in first century Judaism did not mean people who do wrong things. Sinners meant people who chose not to live according to the law of Moses. And when you are a Jew... And, and, and your culture and your life and your worship and your entire heritage is wrapped up in looking and doing Jewish things, you need to do Jewish things in order to be Jewish. Well, these sinners decided, I'm not going to live according to the law of Moses anymore. I'm not going to worship like my people. I'm not going to dress like my people. I'm not going to eat like my people. I'm not going to look like my people. I'm not going to observe things like my people. Oh, and by the way, I probably will not live according to the morality of my people. Because remember, when God gives the Israelites the law of Moses, Exodus, Leviticus, parts of Deuteronomy, he's giving them an entire culture. He's giving them the whole thing. They were a nation of slaves. 
It wasn't just morality that was in the law of Moses. It was the whole kit and caboodle. It's how you are in every single situation. And they're saying, I want none of it. I want none of my heritage. I want none of my culture. I want none of the morals of my people. In essence, these people were thoroughly un-American. I mean, thoroughly un-Jewish. I did that on purpose. Thoroughly un-Jewish. They wanted no part of their heritage and their culture. And they looked at us, I'm sorry, looked at them and said, I don't want any of what you are trying to push on me. They had betrayed their very own people. Yet Jesus is sitting at dinner that night on purpose. On purpose. He's crossing this pain line on purpose. For parts of their lives that were unrighteous, I'm sure Jesus was appalled. Because he calls them sin sick sinners, doesn't he? Did Jesus call these sinners sinners? Yes, he did. But Jesus is giving them the time of day anyways because he's fixated on who they will become, not their current sin. And the Pharisees come and say, what's your master doing, disciples? What's he doing with those people? Now, the Pharisees were the opposite of the sinners. They were sinners themselves. In fact, Jesus says, remember this, unless your righteousness exceeds those of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He had just said that on the Sermon on the Mount. These Pharisees were the ones who loved Jewish culture. They loved the law of Moses, and they had 619 laws that they would make sure you were living by so you could look good and do right as a Jewish person. 619 was all. That's it. So, so, so they loved Jewishness. How could Jesus be with these people who are so thoroughly un-Jewish? How could he be with these people who had betrayed their culture and their heritage? And this is a pain line. You want to know why? Because the Pharisees had all the influence. First century Jews, by every account, every historical record we have, liked the Pharisees. They were well-liked. We don't like the Pharisees because Jesus is always fighting with them. But first century Jews thought they were good people. So Jesus is going to get in conflict with the good people so that he can save the bad people. That's what's happening right here. The Pharisees can besmirch his name. They have the power to look at the common people and say, don't listen to him, don't listen to him. He's a heretic, he's a fraud. He doesn't really follow the law of Moses. Don't listen to Jesus. He is, he is risking that. He's crossing this pain line to risk his reputation because he's making an enemy and risking his reputation not just with the Pharisees but with the common man and woman in Israel by sitting at dinner that night. And what's he risking it for? To be a rebel? For the sake of being unconventional? No. Jesus had to move past conventional thinking to save souls. He had to go outside the box. That doesn't mean he sinned to win sinners. Jesus hates sin. Let me say that again, just in case you want to misinterpret this sermon and say, I said something I didn't say. Jesus hates sin. Can you say that with me? Jesus hates sin. We good with that? Okay, just making sure. So when I say Jesus had to move past conventional thinking to save souls, please do not intuit that I want you to start sinning to save souls. Because I've heard pastors preach that, and I want to kick them. I want to trip them during a basketball game. It's not what he's doing. He, he's, he's willing to risk things here. 
He's willing to risk his influence. He's willing to risk being liked by the common man that he might save some. Ooh, that wasn't even in my notes. I'm going to say it again. He's willing to risk being disliked by the common man in order that he can save some. That's what he's doing here. Jesus crossed pain line after pain line after pain line. The pain line of comfort. Foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Uh, 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 the, the, the pain line of his personal pride. People aren't going to like me. They're going to misunderstand me. They're going to mistreat me. His reputation. People, people who I want to influence are going to be told bad things about me before I even get there. It, does that resonate with you today? You who would be evangelists, that, that people are going to be told negative things about you before you even get to them. Think about that. That's what's taking place right here. His influence, his family, his followers, all in order to save sins, sick souls. So he's had it with the Pharisees. He's had it. Let me show you how he's had it. He says, the sick don't need a doctor, or the, the sick need a doctor, guys, not the healthy. I came here to get the unrighteous, not the righteous. You Pharisees think you have it all together, and that's why I'm not sitting at the table with you tonight. I am here to save sin-sick souls, and you would be content to leave them die, you Pharisees. You would be content to let them endure hell for your pride. So angry is Jesus that he looks at the teachers of the law, and if you don't catch anything else today, catch this. I know it's a, it's, a, it's a rainy day. It's tough to stick with a pastor for 25 minutes. But if so, I, I'm, I'm not even mocking. I'm being dead serious. If you don't catch anything else today, catch this. He looks at the teachers of the law, and he says, go and learn. Those are fighting words. And I want those same fighting words to kick us in the shins this morning. Go and learn. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He tells the teachers of the law, you're missing it, guys. You're missing it. Go and learn it. Your religious piety pales in comparison to the mercy that I want from you. And what is mercy? What's a simple definition of mercy? To give people better than they deserve. All of your, and forgive me for bringing this into the modern day without doing all of the necessary logical steps, but I think you can trust that I'm not just, just doing this and, 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 and refusing to exegete the text for you this morning properly. But let's just make a jump for the sake of time, okay? Let's just make this jump. All of the things we do to be faithfully religious, attend church, serve the brothers and sisters in the body, learn from the scriptures and continue to have them transform our lives, give of our tithes and offerings. All of those things, lifting holy hands, kneeling before the Lord, doing something physical, humbly to match the spiritual, all of these things we do by which we make sacrifices, Jesus is clear that they pale in comparison to how we show mercy to the lost. So much so that he doesn't even qualify it. He just quotes the Old Testament and says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, we can qualify it because we have all of the scriptures, right? We know that we shouldn't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We know that we should be cheerful givers. We know that we should study the word of God together, which is, which is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. We know we ought to do all that. Jesus isn't saying don't do that. So we can qualify it. Jesus doesn't even take the time to qualify, does he? He just says, I desire mercy, not your religion. I desire you to go after sin-sick souls the way I have, not your religion. Jesus was doing evangelism here on purpose and in pain. That's what he was doing. 
He was, he, was, he was in that house on purpose that night for this very moment, and it was going to cause pain to his reputation. It was going to cause pain to his influence. He might have even disliked some of those people because of their attitudes and their behaviors. He certainly didn't like the attitude of the Pharisees. Well, I just don't connect with them. That, that's our line, right? Jesus was doing evangelism on purpose and in pain in order to save sin-sick souls. And he looks at the Pharisees and he says, learn about the mercy that I'm showing tonight. Don't focus on the sin and don't get wrapped up in your own piety. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. See, the beauty of this story, and and, and let's kind of end here today. The beauty of this story, I don't want it to be in the rebuke. There are rebukes where the story ends. Matthew's cool with that. He's a Jewish writer. He's read the prophets his whole life. He's cool ending the story in the rebuke. All right? Let's not end there today. Let's end where we began. The beauty of this story is Jesus' care for souls. That's the beauty. We might feel rebuked today on some level because we're doing a lot of religious stuff, but we're not interested in the lost. We're not showing mercy to people who don't deserve it. But the beauty for Jesus is he somehow looks into that tax collector's booth and goes, I can make of that man what God created him to be, what my father put him on this earth to be. I can do that. And I am going to go risk my reputation and my influence to go have dinner with these sinners who have betrayed their culture and their heritage for vacuous things. That's the beauty. The Lord Jesus cares for souls this much that he's willing to risk all of these things. He saw what God could make of Matthew. He saw what God could make of these sinners. So he was willing to be misunderstood, mistreated, and maligned for souls. So if we want to evangelize today, if we want to start a neighborhood Bible study, or if we want to go with pray and go, or if we want to start inviting folks at our workplace out to lunch and speaking into their lives, or, or, or we look at a neighbor tomorrow and say, can I pray for you? Or invite somebody to church who you know is a step away from Christ. When we evangelize, we must do it because we've learned something. And what's the learning moment here? Is the learning the rebuke or is the learning who Jesus is? Jesus is doing evangelism on purpose and in pain. What we learn is not, I'm a jerk, I should have been thinking differently, though I was a jerk with that young man in my youth group. Perhaps you've been a jerk. Can we say jerk in church? Perhaps you've been a jerk with the way you viewed somebody else who is a sin-sick soul, but what we need to learn is Jesus and who he is. That's what we learn. Jesus is mercy incarnate. We have to get to the point, church, where we evangelize not because we feel guilt in the rebuke, but because we want to emulate the beauty of Christ's love for souls. We want to be like Jesus. We don't want to evangelize out of, a, out of a, well, aren't I unconventional? Look at me. No. But the fact that Jesus can see Matthew and these sinners for who God wants them to become, that is the beauty of the story. So how are you seeing sinners today? 
What purposeful behavior that would cost you would be necessary to show them mercy? I'll ask it again a different way. What pain line would you have to cross on purpose to show mercy to lost souls today? What's the very thing that the Lord has already spoken to you at 1038 this morning that you'd rather not do? That's what we ought to pray about in the next few minutes. Because ultimately we cross the pain line to finish the race that the Lord has given us and to do all that he's called us to do. Would you bow your heads and pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, you were at that house that night on purpose. You called Matthew on purpose. You knew what would happen. You knew that it would cost you by human standards. And you did it anyways because you came to call sinners back into relationship with God. And if it meant sitting with people who were undesirable, you did. If it meant calling people who were traitors, you were willing. Oh God, could we learn about mercy today before we leave this place? Can we learn about mercy? I'm just going to ask you to ask the Lord two questions today in prayer. Lord, what do you want to teach me about mercy? And what would you like me to do on purpose? Would you ask him humbly? I'm asking you humbly. Would you ask him humbly? What do I need to learn about mercy? And what do I need to do on purpose? Lord Jesus, my prayer today for each one of us is that we would see people with your eyes this week and we would do something on purpose to bring someone to you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand today? Perhaps your on purpose is to join Pray and Go with us. The uh, folks are in the lobby ready to sign you up. If you don't know what Pray and Go is, scan that QR code. You'll hear all about it before you leave the building today. Uh, So I want to encourage you to remember that, if God's been speaking to you about that. Perhaps you're on purpose is something a little bit different, and that's great. But we hope that you will do something on purpose this week to show mercy. Let me pray over us. Heavenly Father, send us from this place, ready to do that, which you've called us to do in this place, for your glory and for your name. Amen. God bless you.